This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law over at NYU, and is, of course, a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, we've gotten some mostly election results for 2022, and we didn't see the red wave we were all expecting. The Senate is staying Democratic. The House uh, is has flipped over to the Republicans. And of course, we still have a Democratic president. Now, it's 2022. Um, I will note it's uh, feeling maybe a little bit like 2015. We have President or former President Trump announcing that he's going to be running for president again. So we, we have a lot to talk about this week. I think I'd like you to start with the midterms. We were looking at, well, even a week before the election, um, we were looking at, you know, the Senate going maybe 53, 54 seats to Republicans. That that didn't happen. Um, what do you think? Why, why did this happen, Richard? What, what, what happened? Uh, you're asking the wrong guy, so I'll give you with no confidence my predictions. I think the first thing to note is to actually look at the expenditures. Um, all the Republican senatorial candidates in disputed areas were outspent two, three, four to one. And I think once that happens, if you concentrate your spending at the end, you can have an enormous movement between a Friday poll on the one hand and a Tuesday election on the other hand because of the late shifts that are starting to take place. Uh, so I do think that that was a very serious element in this particular situation. In addition to that, what happened is uh, the Republicans fumbled some of the issues that they ought to have done right, both by omission and by commission. One of the things that was not involved in all in this particular debate was the fiasco that took place inside of Afghanistan. The military unpreparedness issue seemed to get lost. Uh, the immigration problem at the border got some, but not all that much attention. Inflation and gasoline prices seemed to be talked about, but not all that much. What the Democratic press was able to do, much to my surprise, is they managed to make this election about the abortion decision on the one hand um, and the January 6th uprising, however you wish to characterize it, on the other. And they just kept going at it over and over and over again. And none of the Republicans were in a position to do anything about it. Uh, Trump, in his usual ham-handed way, uh, tried to pick and was very successful in picking key candidates in many elections, all of whom lost. Uh, the only way they had a path to victory was to essentially denounce the effort of Trump to uh, jumpstart the recount and all the other stuff that he did. But they were beholden to him. And so therefore, they felt themselves unable to do so. The abortion issue is a bit more of a puzzle because there are at least one third of the American public who thinks that abortion ought to be illegal. And it also turns out there are a large number of people who think it's eminently sensible to say that's a decision that state courts and state legislatures ought to make, not the federal government. Um, and yet what happened, it just came pounding out. And, and so if you listen to this, all the Republicans did was to run from the issue. And what the Democrats did, it said it's a perfectly self-evident truth that a woman's right to choose dominates everything else. There was not a debate on that particular issue. And so that's going to shift something a little bit further as well. And then, of course, this Trump himself. Um, my view about Trump is he has two characteristics. He talks about one, but the other is, in fact, more salient. 
The one that he talks about is he could run a MAGA rally and get 100,000 people stamping their feet and, and putting their banners out and wearing MAGA hats and so forth. And so he says, look, there's nobody on the Democratic side who can do that. And certainly, if you go back to 2020 and look at the Biden rallies, there were weak tea up and down the line. The people were there were mainly sleeping. The crowds were small. Everybody was indifferent. So why is it that Biden with these paltry turnout wins, uh, whereas uh, Trump with these robot turnouts loses? Because when you're doing a kind of thing like that, it's always a mistake to look solely at your target audience. You're not trying to sell magazine subscriptions. You're trying to win an election. And it turns out, therefore, every time that Trump got himself 100,000 people to cheer him on, there would be 500,000 people who said, oh, my God, here this jackass goes again. I can't bear the thought of having to listen to him for another four years. I'm going to vote for somebody on the other side. And this is going to be guilt by association. If Trump is bad, he's also toxic. And he's also toxic. Then all the people who support him are going to have to go down as well. So what Trump does every time he talks is he basically pushes more and more independent voters into the Democratic column. But he doesn't want to take responsibility for that because he only wants to look at the people he keeps. Now, how powerful are these explanations is, I think, a really fair question. And I would say, to put them all together, what you're talking about is maybe four or five point shift. But that's all you need to take every one of the seats and to turn it one way or the other. You don't need huge situations if you're losing 48-52 and you get another four seats. Now you're winning 52-48. And that is, it, I think, what had happened up around or down the board. And the Republicans were not aware of it. In the House seats, there was also something else. I had some time at the Federal Society, and to its great credit, the society in its public face only talks about substantive issues. But when you sit around some of the tables or in the elevators and you start to talk to people, there are a fair number of Republican political operatives who are in the room, and they were all smoke and fire. Every last one of them that I spoke to had exactly the same tale. And they had two villains to the story. One was Donald Trump himself, not only because of the way in which he polarized things, but because he kept of his $200 million, he kept about 185 million of them for himself for the next presidential campaign and let the people whom he endorsed flounder, uh, whereas they were outspending his guys by somewhere between 18 to one uh, in New Hampshire to you know three to one in some other kinds of states. The other person that they were mad about, and this surprised me a bit, uh, was Mitch McConnell. I think it's fair to say that uh, his time is numbered. This is probably the last time he's going to be uh, the party leader. But the response came that he was so intense on trying to maintain uh, the record of being the longest term party leader of either party, that any time there was somebody who might have taken the audience, or who might have taken office, like the fellow in New Hampshire, uh, and voted that way, what happened is McConnell cut him off. He would rather lose an election uh, than lose the particular situation with respect to his party leadership. Now, I have no way of verifying all these stories, and I repeat them, however, because the people who are telling me are people who are sense credible. And it's not just one person who does this. It turns out to be a fairly consistent line. And it's not just in meeting people. It's also when you start looking at newspaper accounts and so forth. It's very clear uh, that many people who were content with the McConnell leadership even six months ago are really starting to show second doubts about that now. And so one fellow said to me, you know, 
I can tell you we lost three red seats in Pennsylvania because we could not coordinate our spending efforts in order to beat a very vulnerable Democrat. You know, you run this around the country and you find a seat here and another seat there. And what you do is you could add up 15 more seats and all of a sudden, you know, you got a 30 point gap instead of a five point gap or a six point gap. And so this is a story of causation of many little things, all of which came together, all of which seemed to cut against the Republicans. There's something else the Democrats did, which I regard as quite vile, but nonetheless very effective, is what they did. They spent lots of money, sometimes as many as 20 or $30 million, to find some Trump-like candidate on the Republican side and to get them on the ballot so that it'd be easier for the Democrats to beat them. I think things like that happened with the governorship in Pennsylvania. It happened with the senatorship in Pennsylvania. It happened with the uh, Republican nominee, both for governor and for senator in uh, Arizona. And you start looking at these states which are eminently readable you know making red and so forth and they went 0 for 4 in those particular areas and so this is then going to lead to the question where do we go from here and i think the republicans have a lot of soul searching in which to engage with the democrats have to too so they have to understand they play the same way they did before and they don't have old donald trump to kick around again come 2024 without him it's a completely different party well we do have to talk about Trump for a little bit because he did just announce that he's running for president again. And I think there are there are political questions and then there are some legal questions that that inevitably come up. The political ones, I the one I think the one I'm you know everyone's really thinking is should the is the GOP going to dump Donald Trump? Should they? Um he's never gotten more than what 50 47% uh 47% of the the popular vote. Um, you know, aside from winning the presidency, it, it, the other elections didn't look too great. The candidates he identified didn't do very well. And then, Richard, there are the legal questions. And, um, you know, it, many people might have been expecting perhaps an indictment of Trump before he announced for president, but now he's announced. So does this mean his legal woes are behind him once again? Well, let's start with the first of these kinds of questions and try to figure out what you make of the Trump support and so forth. He has always been a minority candidate and he beat Hillary Clinton because he understood that electoral votes ran. And so he did not spend lots of money running up a popular vote in California where it made no good. And he kept all his money in Pennsylvania where she took her money out of Pennsylvania and put it into North Carolina where she lost by five or six points. So uh, she basically was extremely inept in the way in which she spent her money. He was very clever in the way in which he spent his. But you know, you can't count on mistakes like that time after time. And so when you get to the next particular election, there isn't that thing there. The Democrats know exactly where they have to contest these kinds of things. There were many allegations of vote fraud of one kind or another. I'm not going to comment on those. My attitude is whether they were true or false doesn't matter. Once the vote comes in, it's over. And if you want to have a general congressional investigation of this in an effort to reform the laws down the road, you can do it whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. But Trump essentially then committed the cardinal sin. He keeps on railing against everything that had happened. Uh, you create before uh, the January 6th fiasco, uh, what happens is you had the Georgia special election, and it turns out that the Democrats managed to sweep the board. And why was that? Because Trump was telling them all this stuff is corrupt, so why are you going to turn out and vote? And the reduction in turnout in Republican counties was more than enough to sort of swing the thing. And so I think one of the things that this suggests is that there are a large number of Republicans who really think that he's a public menace now and are willing to take him on. The other big difference between this situation in 2016 
is the new guys have a champion. The single person who most advanced his political career in either party under these circumstances was Ron DeSantis. He ran a very disciplined campaign. Uh, he knew how to pick his issues. He beat, I guess it was Charlie Crist, last time by 30,000, this time by a million and a half votes of one sort or another. To make it better, you have Trump in his juvenile way coming forward and calling him name. And notwithstanding that, he got votes. My theory is that the Trump magic worked in favor of DeSantis. And that what you did is you had a bunch of people say, here this clown goes again. So I'm going to make sure that my guy gets it. And so what really has to happen, I think, for the Republicans to have a success is there are a lot of people who are wannabes, who are credible candidates, you know, uh, who do we think about this? Pompeo turns out to be one. Nikki Haley turns out to be another. A Scott turns out to be one. Uh, but if you do that, it's going to be a repetition of 2016, in which it turns out fragmented people against Trump meant that he picked them off one at a time and he got the nomination. I cannot stress how an utter catastrophe this would be uh, for the Republican Party if Donald Trump is the nominee. It strikes me as a road to perdition in hell. It will be so bad when it comes out that probably lose 2026 and 28, uh, 28 in the bargain. But I don't think this man cares the slightest bit about that. Uh, what had a certain degree of public benevolence back in 2016, maybe, now seems to me to be a raw egotistical play of the worst order. So what really has to happen is you know, people like Carl Rove and the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and so forth, they have to come out and denounce him and say that he's utterly unfit to holding public office at this particular point, no matter what you thought of his achievements early on. If you remember my particular view on Trump, and I still stand by him, I was for him getting out of office in early February of 2017 and said so publicly. My view was psychologically he was utterly incorrigible. And if you got rid of him, then you'd get Pence, who at the time was a perfectly credible candidate to be president of the United States, no matter how much the Democrats might not have liked him. But it wasn't the question of having to go over to Hillary Clinton as you would in a particular election. And then in 2020, where the choice was Biden, my view was that Trump, bad as he was, was the lesser evil, that Biden, I think, was about as bad as became about as bad as I thought he would. I had a very low estimation of the particular man. And I think that many of Trump's excesses came from the fact that he lost and we would have not seen anything like that if he had won. And we would have kind of limped through this particular term. So the Republicans have to gang tackle this particular man uh, to keep him out of office. Now, you mentioned something about an indictment. Well, yeah, Richard, is he is he is an indictment still on the way? An indictment still on the way. Your guess is as good as mine. It will be a democratic calculation, and the sole thing they're going to worry about is whether or not an indictment is going to improve or reduce the chances of winning the presidency with Biden or his successor and taking the Congress back in 2024. And the arguments, of course, go both ways. What you do is you put him up to indictment. He now has to spend all his time defending himself. It starts to look like a really seamy operation. And the Republicans said, we can't take this wounded duck and put him on the ticket. We'll vote for somebody else. Or Trump might get out there and in his piteous voice come forward and say, look at the way these Democrats are abusing me. The only way that we can get back at them is for you to support me so that when I get into the uh, White House, I can clean the place up and throw these rascals into jail. And if you think, in effect, it's going to strengthen Trump for some reason like that, you will not indict him if a Democrat. If you think the other way around, you will. Now, which way is this likely to play? Uh, frankly, my dear, I'm just not enough of a good political seer to make those guess, but I don't think that 
that I'm alone. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a little bit of temporizing on this. People will watch the way they think that Trump is campaigning, the way he's being received and so forth. And they won't make this kind of a judgment until after the election. They want things to settle down until they get some better information about how it goes. And I think for the Democrats, that turns out to be the, the right strategy. I think for the Republicans, what has to be the correct strategy is every respectable leader of the party has to go after him now. And what they have to do is to get every single other candidate who's running for office, even if they don't back um, Ron DeSantis, to denounce Trump and saying he has to be read out of the particular party. And frankly, I think if they all do it, they could make it stick. If one of them tries to curry his favor in order to become vice president or some key cabinet officer, it's going to make things a little bit more difficult to do. I think in the end, my guess is DeSantis will get the nomination. The question is whether he'll be wounded. Uh, my other guess is I think that Joe Biden is sufficiently far gone as an intellect and as a political leader that the Democrats will pry him out of this sometime in February or so and sort of say, we love you, Joe. Thank you. You deserve a retirement. But we cannot in good conscience support anybody running for president of the United States when he's going to be 82 years old when he takes a second term. This man just does not have all of his particular marbles. Um, you know, I understand and sympathize with him. I'm six months younger than Joe Biden. And so I sometimes wonder that about myself, but I have the following difference. I mean, I work day to day. I'm on no long-term four-year contract. And last I looked, I was not a nominee for president of the United States. And so I'm all in favor of people extending their professional lives into their 80s and 90s. I am not in favor of them taking public office with term limits uh, where you can actually, or term, uh, fixed terms, where you could deteriorate vastly within the term and leave the country with a mess. I also think, by the way, for the Democrats, they're going to have to dump Kamala Harris. I think the general view about her, which I tend to share, is she's just not up to this particular job in any way, shape, or form, and that it will be a huge mark against Biden if his second in command turns out to be her. So they have to find some strong horse amongst the recent elections to either governor or the Senate um, who can take her place. It's not going to be pretty, but I think, in fact, it has to be inevitable. So my hope is that we will not have Trump. We will not have Biden. We will not have Harris. I suspect we will never have Mike Pence. And what we need for 2024 is a brand new slate with a bunch of interesting and younger people. Can I finish on one more question here, Richard? Because I, I you know, a, a brand new slate of people, and how about a, a clean and um, uh, easily, quickly resolved election? I want to read you a, a tweet from uh, Brian Rydell, who said, "HR one and the next Congress should be the Electoral Count Act, and HR one and every state legislature should be the Adopt Florida's Vote Tabulating System Act." Any any reactions on on where we're at and on that that sort of legislation? Oh yes, I have very strong views on this issue. I think in order to control fraud, in order to secure popular support, uh, the time frames have to be extremely short and the system has to be highly reliable. So if you have, I think, the Los Angeles system where you cast your votes and they only start to be counted on election day and even if they're earlier, can't do that. If you're going to have mail-in ballots, what they have to do is you have to have a deadline probably a day or two before the election takes place, announce it in advance, count them on election day, do not release the results because it's going to prejudice the way other people vote, and then have the rest of the tally take place and be counted um, within 24 to 48 hours of the time of the election. 
the longer this thing goes, the more likely it is that somebody's going to believe that there's shenanigans or there's illegitimacy, and we don't have any room whatsoever in our particular system uh, uh, to take that particular case. The uh, view that we often start hearing is that the optimal strategy in elections to make sure as many people who want to vote are able to vote by getting rid of all of these sharp limitations. I think what happens is two things. One, if you put the sharp limitations in, some people will adapt their behavior and will vote in conformity with them. So the slippage will be small. But more importantly, it's not just the number of votes that matters. It's the confidence that people have in the electoral system. And these loose systems don't work. And that means all of the reforms that were introduced in 2020, drop boxes, people being able to carry other people's there, sending ballots out by mail and not keeping track as to whether or not they go to the recipient or not. These are all open invitations for some kind Kind of fraud, not necessarily because individuals are going to be corrupt, but the key thing to understand is that intermediates can go around and clean out all the mailboxes and then have a fresh set of ballots, which they can distribute to their friends, and it would be impossible to figure out how it is that you stop that. So tight elections is absolutely critical in these situations. My view is I was upset at what happened in 2020 because that was not observed. I have no idea as to how extensive it was or which way it started to cut, but the best way to run a decent set of elections is to make sure that these marathon events never happen and so that you have tight, tight rules uh, that are going to govern this situation and you don't want state court judges that they did in Pennsylvania saying, well, we know what the statute says, but we're going to extend it anyhow. I regard that as a real disaster, a usurpation of legislative power in the name of judicial probity on the one hand. And what makes it so terrible is there are two errors going on. One is they picked the wrong rules. And secondly, it turns out it's a tenuous justification. So uh, put me down there as supporting those kinds of rules. The last thing I want was the uh, basically the Voting Reform Act that the Democrats floated in the beginning of the last Congress. That's going nowhere. Uh, because of the Republican House. And indeed, the major achievement of this is all the exotic stuff, packing the court, breaking states up into new states and so forth, uh, are not going to happen. What is going to happen is the Democratic Express and getting people through for judicial nominations will indeed take place. And so you're going to see something which is very, very unhappy. Uh, uh, basically, the court's going to turn bit more to the left at the lower levels, and the Supreme Court will remain pretty solidly conservative. And the ability of lower court judges to either circumspect or you know, circumvent what the flout Supreme Court rulings in a whole variety of areas is really quite quite notorious. Remember, there are thousands of cases each year decided in the second system, in the, in the, in the lower courts, and the Supreme Court takes 85 and 90 of them on all sorts of different things. You cannot keep a hand firmly on the tiller if, in fact, you wait five years between decisions on a really important issue. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.